Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. Please welcome back Dr. James Catholic. Well, thank you for coming back. I wrote this in four parts, and we're not going to be able to do all four, and I don't know what we're going to do. So what we're going to do is the best we can. And I'm going to begin and just go where we, where we go. There were two questions that had come up which I very much appreciated. Uh, one was not a question from you. I wanted to say something. I used the term the Victorines, V-I-C-T-O-R-I-N-E-S. Uh, they are a, a group of uh, theologians and spiritual writers from the Monastery of St. Victor in Paris from the 12th century. And I got... I've always been interested in them, but I was interested in the fact that T.S. Eliot said that uh, Dante is, uh, is the way St. Thomas Aquinas feels, based on the theology and mysticism of the Victorines. And the Victorines were people who were uh, particularly interested in a kind of, uh, it's not going to do justice to them, but it, it's a very uh, reasonable kind of spiritual theology, sort of an, an unfrantic spiritual theology that has a lot to do with the via affirmativa, which the uh, divine comedy is full of. You know, the via affirmativa is when you look at nature and the world around you and it leads you to God. It's the way of yes. It has its dangers, of course, because you can fall into worshiping the creature rather than creator. And on the other side of that, there's a theology called the via negativa, which is to say, well, it's true that nature, as St. Paul said, leads us to God, but nature is not God, so you better be careful. The Victorines were particularly interested in the via affirmativa, as is Dante. The other question was, which I think maybe I, no one's touched on sufficiently, was why it's called the Divine Comedy. Dante didn't call it the Divine Comedy. He just called it the Commedia, the, the comedy. It's a comedy, and in a way, the work is a definition of what comedy became. Comedy actually uh, originates in Greek theater with the Greek word that, that really does mean something that is farcical or funny. And literature critics have spent the last 400 years trying to point out that that's not what comedy means now, and it's not what it meant as time went on. It's a story with a happy ending, usually ending in a marriage, and other characteristics. The sacred scripture is the fundamental comedy. So we're the people who gave it the name divine, but it's the comedy, the story with a happy ending. If you haven't read anything else, just read the last part of it, and you'll see what a happy ending it is. So I'm going to first talk about hell. <laughs> an editor remarked that Dante seemed to have the strange view that one's, and this is an editor who should have known better, 
one's eternal destiny was determined by the state of his soul at the moment of death. Now, of course, this does seem incredible to an age and of the fundamental option in moral theology, which is the, the strange view that if, in general, you've tried to be good and it just happens that you've done a few really bad things, God's not going to pay any attention to those bad things, so it will all be all right. Now, Dante is right, and the fundamental option people are wrong, which is the reason that Catholics have always had a belief that every moment in the making of a soul is decisive, a doctrine that is relieved by the possibility of good habits and life in the Holy Spirit, so it's not an exercise in eternal anxiety. Days are not supposed to be lived in anxiety. I've always thought one of the most difficult kinds of presuppositions in the Mass was that we're going to be delivered from anxiety, which is really hard to do. But nonetheless, marked by the fact that we're making our souls moment by moment, and that every moment has a certain ultimacy. The doctrine that the editor found puzzling is presupposed by the repentance of the dying thief. It's presupposed in Dante by, by the category of people he calls late repentance, people who didn't pay any attention to Christ and to God until the last minute, but sure enough, they got it right at the end. It's familiar to a generation of Catholics who, like Guy Crouchback in Evil Noir's Sword of Honor trilogy, had been taught to have an act of contrition always near at hand, close to their lips in a dangerous world. This is at least in part of what Cardinal Newman meant. Cardinal Newman was, of course, always capable of making an arresting assertion. What he meant when he said that it would be better for the stars to fall from heaven and for thousands to die in abject poverty and hunger and misery than for one soul knowingly to commit a venial sin. Now, of course, that made a lot of people mad. Uh, it made them mad because probably it's true. And that's a reflection on the fact that our souls are made moment by moment and that uh, Dante is right. You want to be sure you die in good shape with God. The existence of the inferno is necessary, for it is the possibility of loss always there in the background of the unaccountable grace of Christ that makes life the adventure that it is. Hell is part of the divine comedy. The more gladsome, this is an editorial comment, the more gladsome the rejoicing and the more vehement the wrath, the more emphatic is the assertion that man's will is free. So hell is part of the comedy. This is also, you know, and I probably say this again in this paper, but I mind, won't mind saying it twice. This is probably the reason that the, uh, well, this is why John Paul II said that there was a moral necessity for the existence of hell. You know, he was nattered about various things all his life. He was nattered about altar girls. He was nattered about hell. He was nattered about all kinds of things that theologists found to teach. And finally, you said that there's a moral necessity for the existence of eternal punishment. Now, I do not say that this is a very profound theological observation, but it is an historical and psychological fact that Dante's contemporaries who lived in the shadow of disease and death, as well as the possibility of the eternal loss that theology promised, were happier than we now are. For human souls are not meant to inhabit a morally consequenceless world. And for every person who has been driven mad by an irrational fear of hell, there are millions of others who have been driven 
into existential meaningless by the conviction that their life has no consequence at all. Walker Percy, one of my favorite writers, was convinced that a kind of existential meanness was encouraged in his contemporaries by the fact that life basically meant nothing, resulting in desperate expeditions into sensuality, travel, and alcoholism. The famous first part of the Inferno contains the epigraph of hell. Justice moved my great maker, God eternal wrought me, the power and the unsearchably high wisdom, the primal love supernal. Out of love God put an order in things, and that order is to a significant degree his justice. I don't have time this morning to talk about the relation between God's justice and his love, and you won't ever be confused about the fact that God's justice is is uh, not a uh, trivial, uh, objective, merely objective kind of concept. God's justice is the foundation of the happiness of heaven and of the desolation of hell and is somehow the presupposition of his love. And because Dante's cosmos is about love as the cause and fruition of our knowledge of God, the justice that God gives us and seeks in us and plants in us is a justice of the heart. This is what the sixth session of the Council of Trent is about. You ought to uh, keep a paperback copy of the Council of Trent on your bedside table so that once in a while you can look at the sixth session. And those wonderful words about the fact that it is God's, out of God's love that he gives us a good heart, which is the final answer, of course, to something called Pelagianism. In the background lies the medieval and Renaissance view that sin is indeed a very bad thing. Not a mistake not a necessity, but a creation-destroying event. The church fathers almost universally believe that the reason we come on the scene into creation in which there's considerable chaos going on is because the angels rebelled. The greatest angel rebelled. He's going to show up in Dante stuck down there in, in hell. But it's not a trivial event. The assumption is that one disobedience doomed mankind and marred the face of nature introducing a note of disorder that was remedied in the natural world only with the covenant with Noah. You ever stop to wonder about why God had to rearrange things? He had to rearrange things because not only was the fact that the sin of Adam and Eve had destroyed the form in nature, making nature which was supposed to be patient to our touch, something that resisted us, making childbearing, which is supposed to be the most wonderful thing on earth, difficult, and then creating a situation in which you can't be sure but that there are going to be two springs followed by three winters so that God has to straighten that out and say, I'm going to put order back in it. All this is a result of the chaos introduced by sin. It's not a small thing. In the divine comedy, the threat of hell and the hope of heaven, drawn on the large canvas of theology and placed in the middle distance of political life are intensely personal. You should always remember that this story is a story that is written in first person. I am with Etienne Gilson in believing that the dark wood in which Dante found himself was the dark simply, well, it was more than that, but it was the dark wood of his sins, attested by his misbehavior, which you can read about in the Purgatory Canto 33, as a work and as an act, the divine comedy is a work of penance. So at the end of it, if we get there this morning, at the end of it, what there is is an act of confession and contrition, 
That's what the whole thing is building. Because it's about the salvation of Dante Alighieri, you see. It, it's not, uh, uh, it, it is always at least about real people and real things. Now, it's about more than that. But there was an attempt, I think, particularly by French scholars to evaporate the thing into a kind of realm of, uh, I don't like to misuse the word myth, but into, the, into a world that was merely symbolic. I don't think that's true. Like every act of penitence, Dante's was also the remedy which saved him. Not only his expiation, but his redemption. To make expiation, he had to awaken in the falling man, the poet, whom his friend had been striving to recall to life, but in vain. Only Beatrice could bring him into life truly. To make himself worthy to grapple with such a task, he decided to keep silent as long as the necessary preparation through the years of initiation into philosophy and theology mentioned in the banquet. Haven't talked about that, but one of the things you want to read if you get interested in this person is a little book he wrote named The Convivio or The Banquet, which is a series of little essays interspersed with poetry. Interestingly enough, it's very much like uh, Boethius's Consolation of Philosophy which is when he takes up philosophy. And I didn't say that in my paper, but there's an order in, his, in the unfolding of his life. He begins as a poet. He then takes up philosophy. And in the end, it's theology that, that captivates him. To write such a work, and these, these are the works of, uh, words of Gilson, which I'm quoting, which smashes through the low ceiling of courtly poetry like an arrow shot at the sky, because, of course, this is the era of courtly poetry. And one of the things you can do is just locate Beatrice there. But she's, and she, she does belong there. But she's so, so much more than that. The era goes through, shot through the sky. Dante had to readjust his moral life by marrying the patient Gemma Donati. Then, in spite of a thousand and one setbacks caused by civil war, domestic separation, exile... He had to grow to the statue of this marvelous work, uh, pouring out his loves and hates, his feelings of tenderness and wrath, his remorse and highest Christian hopes, in which the voice rang out in tones the world had never heard before. The writing of the poem was not his salvation. So it's the story of a pilgrim, a viator, viator in the way of medieval moral theology. And the poem recounts the pilgrim. It's interesting because he's the only thing that moves, basically. He and Virgil were the only thing that moved. It took me a long time to get it clear in my mind that, that you can say that in a certain sense things are happening in purgatory, and in another way things are happening in the life of the blessed. But it, there's, there's no way to get from hell into purgatory. And the way from purgatory into heaven is arduous. So it's a story of a pilgrim. His guide is Virgil, whom he calls that font of splendor, whence poured so wide a stream of lordly speech, calling him the honor and light of poets all in each. He said of him, Thou art my master and my author, thou from thee alone I learned the singing strain, the noble style that does me honor now. And Virgil, like every other good thing, is the poem. The poem is a gift from, from Beatrice. Uh, it's very hard for us, I think, to understand the place that Virgil and Homer, Aristotle, Plato, 
all these folks. And one of the things I was going to say at the end of this that I'll say now is just reading this should disabuse you permanently of the ordinary historiography of the Middle Ages, which always insists that these, it's the Enlightenment historiography, that these people were basically very ignorant folks. Uh, you can just undertake the task of looking at Dante's sources and asking yourself how much you know about them. Father mentioned Charlemagne. You can do the same thing. I've often wished that I could have a formal Charlemagne test for professors, because now Charlemagne was sort of a barbarian up there in his little court at Aix or Aachen. But his biographer tells us that, well, he, he, did, he could manage Frankish as his native language. He could do Latin, speak Latin. <clears throat> he couldn't say the Greek language, but he could read it. And he kept a little uh, slate under his pillow that in the middle of the night he would wake up and practice writing the Greek letters on. Now, I've often thought that if that, was the, if that were the test for professorial access, then we might not make it, because it might turn out that this barbarian king was smarter than we are. And it might also turn out that Dante is smarter than we are, rather than this wretched story that the Enlightenment tells in which there's been this perpetual progress to, well, what? To, well, where we are now, which is not entirely easy to see as progress in every way. Anyhow, Dante's journey through hell begins when he and Virgil are ferried across the Acheron by Charon, the ferryman, who is persuaded against all precedent to allow the living to take this tour because living people aren't supposed to be making their way through hell or through purgatory for that matter. Dante's picture of these folks rushing down to the bank of the river to get into hell is a terrifying image because the point is that they press to pass the river for the fire of heavenly justice spurs them so their fear is changed into desire. They are so wedded to the sin that has destroyed them that they are on the way to its source and can't be stopped. When you read this, you're bound to think of, of uh, Eliot's line in the wasteland, the unreal city, a crowd flowed over London Bridge, so many, I had not thought that death had undone so many. So hell is a journey downward, just as paradise is an ascent. The moral metaphor was immortalized by Bernard of Clairvaux in his Steps of Pride and Humility, which is an account written originally for monastics, but having much wider influence about the descent into pride and the fact that we can rise out of it with humility. So that in, in hell we find those most deserving of God's mercy at the top and those locked in deliberate malice in the depth. The dominant spiritual metaphor takes Dante and Virgil on a descent through the circles, moving through the sins of incontinence to the sins of violence or brutishness toward the deep-dyed guilt of fraud and malice. It is something of a commonplace that the order of descent is not the order we would give to human folly and failure now. I expect that until recent times, we would have almost surely located sensuality at the bottom. I think probably because it's so frightening, because, it, because before 1965 it had all kinds of consequences. Whereas it's so easy to ignore the fact that things like curiosity and pride are the real soul-destroying sins. <clears throat> 
This organization in which sensuality is the worst thing that ever happens is a Protestant organization of conscience. It was not the Catholic view and it was not the moral theology of the church and that for many reasons. Uh, the principal reason is that the sins at the top of hell, that these people in also true purgatory, have in them a kind of note of at least uh, some involvement with another person. And the moral theolo in moral theology, the church has always been hardest on those sins that were simply self-centered, whereas the ones that, that have this little shadow, perhaps it's a false shadow, but it is a shadow of charity, were never conceived to be so terrible. The three, well, they are terrible, but they're not as terrible. The three grand divisions are symbolized by the leopard, the lion, and the wolf, most of the sins Dante characterizes as incontinence have about them a note of what the Greeks sometimes call pleonexia, or just wanting too much, or wanting it out of order. These are the sons of the leopard. They involve things good in themselves. This is a distinction from Aristotle. There are things good in themselves, like sex, food, and wealth, and a desire for justice, but these things become sins because they are sought in the wrong degree or the wrong circumstances. Sexual relationships are a notorious example of a human action that to some degree can be made right or wrong through circumstances. It can certainly be made wrong. A good pursuit at the wrong time or with the wrong person, but still having about it that kind of ghost of forgetfulness of self. And although this is not to be emphasized much in undergraduate colleges, sexual sins often have about them at least some note of regard for an other as I said earlier, a kind of ghost of charity. Aristotle, whom Dante had at hand and in mind always, made a distinction between such sins of excess and things wrong in themselves that no moderation of degree, no circumstance can ever render right. Thus the sins of violence, the sins of the lion, are injustices done against self, neighbor, and God. These are deliberate attacks on the moral order of the world a forcing of the forms and things by the assertion of will, simply of power. And finally, then, there are the sins of the wolf, born of fraud and malice, from seduction and flattery to forgery, and finally to treachery against lords and benefactors to deception and betrayal. The lowest circle is inhabited by those who betray their benefactor or lord. And in this for a reason that would not be evident to us. I recalled more than once the comment of an editor of Charlemagne's wonderful biographer by a, a person named Notker, who asked rhetorically, just how did Charlemagne manage to govern an empire that stretched from Frisia to Dalmatia? With horseback and sail, the only means of communication. The answer, of course, and I will say this, I'm afraid, twice too, the answer was that the empire was held together with a pledge of faith, with obedience that described a kind of hierarchy of promises, which the investiture controversy that I spoke about on last day was only one example. Betrayal has, of course, objectively a horror about it because it mocks the bond of friendship that makes the city, but in Dante's world it also created political chaos. If we move along to the vestibule of hell, we find that there those who do not even deserve hell. And it is a Dante-esque prescience that these are in greatest number. 
but that they must somehow be included in the story. These are those whose lives were lived below the bar of moral significance, those who simply avoided the adventure and who consequently he can call rabble whom God and his enemies despised, this scum who never lived, this the nearly soulless. Now, this is bound to remind us of the passage in C.S. Lewis's Screwtape Letters, the last piece that he put in it that he wrote in, I think, 1954. You remember, it was at the Devil's uh, Banquet at the graduation ceremony of the Tempter's School. And the principal demon got up to point to apologize for the fact that the fair, the souls on which they feasted, although they were very numerous, were so flabby and tasteless. And the reason they were flabby and tasteless was because they were simply vermin who had just slipped into hell, you know, without even thinking about it very much. Vermin so muddled in mind, so passively responsive to environment, that it's hard to raise them to the level of clarity and deliberateness at which moral sin becomes possible. I would think, you know, you might see that in, in maybe in ourselves, but in some of our contemporaries, who seem simply blind to the possibilities of the human adventure. There's no heaven, there's no hell, there's just nothing, sort of. And that's who he's talking about. In Dante, these are souls in endless flight, chasing a banner with no design, circling endlessly without purpose. What gnaws at them, asks Dante in the reply, is they have no hope of death. So most of them are simply in motion. There was a great sermon that Newman preached when he returned one time to Oxford in 1878, which turned on the point of imagining what eternal life would mean without God, simply stuck there somewhere. Dante's is a complex metaphor, always surprises us by those he cho chooses to illustrate these various failures. Celestine V, the only pope who resigned, has gone down in histories of the church as a pious monk who could not bear the pains imposed by the papacy to which he had been elected. We usually see him as a sympathetic figure. For Dante, he is the emblem of the coward spirit who made the great refusal, the only pope who, having been elected, laid down this crucifying responsibility to which he had been called to return to his monastery. If we enter the first circle as we approach the very rim of the pit, what we run into is limbo, which is a poetic reality now sort of much contested. I don't think it needs to be contested because it seems to me that, that there's at least a poetic necessity for it. And when we get there, we're at the intersection of several undying ideas. The Mediterranean world generally knew that death did not end life. Nobody who lived around our little sea thought that when you were dead, you were dead. Now, they had a very gloomy picture of where you were. If you were a Jew, you thought you were in Sheol. You remember the Old Testament is full of people who threaten God by saying, if you send me down to Sheol, who's going to praise you? Be careful about this. But when you... <laughs> When you get down there, you're kind of nowhere, you know, you're in this gray world. This has got to be the same world that the Romans and the Greeks thought of as Hades, which is 
Not a, it's not the lake of fire. It's not a place of intense personal punishment. It's just very unpleasant, you know, and you're just down there. Now, there are exceptions to the rule because if you're a great general, you may make it to the Milky Way, or if you're a good soldier, you may make it to the Elysian Fields. But for you and me, there's just this great world down there below everything. And that's an idea that will not die. Both Hades and Sheol are places of sorrow cut off from life, but not places of, for torment. Here, as Dante knows well, are the spirits in prison mentioned by St. Peter. The limbo of the fathers, where Abraham and the prophets and perhaps just men of old await what is called misleading the harrowing of hell and the descent of Christ. The word hell in the English language is really misleading because we've been taught to think of it as, as a place full of uh, burning, determinate, individual punishment. That's due to the Germanization sort of in the language of the content. If you think about it, you know, if, if Christ actually, if it were possible for Christ to enter hell, it would disappear. But it is the case that he does enter the place of departed spirits, and that's what Donnie's talking about here. The necessity of this is in part simply a call of God's promise. Abraham and the prophets cannot be excluded from the vision of God. It is also partly a deeply moral idea. Christian conscience has always found it repugnant, and I, dogmatic theologians among you, I apologize, but Christian conscience has always found it deeply repugnant that unbaptized children should just be eternally punished. This is also why the early fathers could not bear the thought of Socrates being in hell. Now, whether a gloomy netherworld or an almost paradisial state lacking only the vision of God, somewhere on the path connecting these images lay what Dante, the people Dante reserved for the first circle. He asked Virgil, Tell me, I began in hope, of some assurance of the gleaning of our sin-conquering faith has any man by his self-merit ever fared forth from hence and come to be among the blessed? He took my hidden meaning, Dante says. And Virgil's account is, when I was nearly in this state, when Virgil was nearly in the underworld, I saw one come in majesty and awe, and on his head wore crowns of victory. Our great first father's spirit he did withdraw, that's Adam, Righteous Abel, David, Abraham, Israel, and Jacob, with many another of his chosen nation, these did he bless, and know that ere this day no human souls did ever see salvation. So with this harrowing of the underworld, heaven with its antechamber of purgatory and hell become the only possibilities, the gray world having been left behind, its inhabitants consigned either to hell or heaven. But it is the claim of Dante that within the very margins of hell, there is a place for those born before Christ, for the poets and philosophers. Being unbaptized, they cannot enter purgatory or paradise. These souls should not yet, their merit, excuse, their merit lacked its chiefest fulfillment, lacking baptism, which is the gateway to the faith. But here are the great ones, grieving and siring, sighing, not for torment, but for loss undying. And Dante is overjoyed to see them all. Because if they're not there, this is a huge problem for the 13th century. If, because you just can't believe that the inhabitants, for instance, of Raphael's school of Athens are all in hell. Because that means the entire 
intellectual foundations of the medieval world are there, which is not going to work out. Dante here also meets the great poets. He meets Homer. One of the high personal high points for what is for him a kind of a sad story is that Homer, and who are the four he loves? Homer, uh, Virgil, Ovid, uh, Lucan, take him into their company. He and Virgil become part of the company of great poets, which just pleases him no end, although he has to leave the four behind and the only two go on forward. I share with these the honorable grand title, into their fellowship they deign to invite and make me sixth among such minds as they. Here are kings and soldiers victorious in battle, Aeneas and Caesar, Brutus who brought down Tarquin, and here are all the great philosophers. But Dante is writing out of the sensibilities of his age, not out of the catechism. And it is odd in a way that he's writing it all. It's a poetic device that he's writing it all because he should, shouldn't be able to write in hell, but he is. Dante is, is uh, his journey, he can do this because his journey was willed by heaven. It's no place for the living. Along the way, he runs into the monster menace who guards. Virgil answers that Dante's journey is willed where will and power are one. Enough, ask thou no more. So, leaving that company in which there are only sighs, he moves into the company in which there are this pain and cries of anguish. And all of these who, who press to pass the river for the fire of heavenly justice spurs them all. So they go forward chattering and blaspheming to stand before the monster menace. Then confession pours out till there is nothing left to tell. So the key to the comedy is in the fact that the inhabitants of hell, purgatory, and paradise have chosen their destinies by their desires. The lost souls in the inferno have become inseparable from their sins, which sins they now are. Now, Dante's geography of hell is nothing if not creative. He was not particularly interested, it would seem, in the biblical metaphors of the smoldering garbage dump and outer darkness. He seems to have begun with the idea of hell as a place right beneath the crust of the earth, but the dominant image is of a funnel which is directing all these souls, uh, depending on where they're located, past Menace, past uh, the dog, past Pluto, and his descriptions have made what some authors say of Dante, that he was a master of disgust. Now, obviously, you can't visit, we can't visit every circle, so we'll just visit the first one, because I'm going on too long already. At the top, and this is one we perhaps can understand, buffeted by the dark wind, swept along aimlessly, certain only of their lust, which is itself their punishment, because now that's all they can do. Some of these lost ones are unfamiliar, but there's Cleopatra, whom, whom love slew, says Dante. Helen, for whose sake rove past long evil years. She's the inspiration of everything that happens in Troy. Paris, Tristram, Dido. The centerpiece is Francesca de Rimini, who is the aunt of one of his dear friends and sometimes host. She was married to a man with great deformity, so she fell in love with his brother who is described as the lad with the lovely body, took me with such great joy of him that see it holds me yet. 
And the poem continues, one day we read for pastime how enthralled Lord Lancelot lay to love who loved the queen. This is the courtly tradition. We were alone. We thought no harm at all. Then there was a kiss. We read no more. End of the story. This is often cited, as Charles Williams wrote, as an example of Dante's tenderness. But as he said, this is much more. It's account of the drift into sin that makes being in flesh in this sin-scarred world a dangerous business. Charles Williams wrote that Dante so heightens the excuse that the excuse reveals itself as precisely the sin, the persistent parleying with the occasion of sin, the sweet prolonged laziness of love, the first surrender of souls to hell, small but certain. The form of sin was the adultery. The poetic sin was the shrinking from the adult love demanded of them. And as they drifted into sin, so now they drift forever, driven by the dark wind of their passion. So it's probably not difficult to understand Francesca and her sin and her ultimate failure, it's harder for us to under... So many of the, of the sinners in hell are there as the result of what we would call economics and politics, uh, in which Dante is acutely interested. One of, for instance, we would not automatically think of wastrels and hoarders as occupying a circle in hell. In fact, I guess we would think <laughs> the government is perpetually aiming at greater consumption, the more the better. In a civilization in which things are made to self-destruct at 30 months, you see. So we would find this very unusual, but you're in, you're in a civilization in which sometimes there's not enough, and in which the symbol of the barn builder who's got everything while other people have nothing is a very important one. These are people who, in Dante's words, either chuck away or hold too tight. Wastrels are miserly hoarders. The coveters are the careless. These sinners are banded together in a kind of dance in which they bump each other perpetually. One could also go on to, well, not, well, heretics. One of his categories is heretics. Another one that's hard for us to understand because aren't heretics just people who have a different idea? And, and in a situation in which the ultimate value is freedom of expression, don't they have a right to do what they want to do? One of the things that St. Thomas More is always faulted for is the fact that he shut Dr. Richard Hunn up in a prison and then was at least complicit in having him done away with because he was a heretic. Thomas More said heresy is worse than the plague because it destroys the culture. Now, of course, that's an organic Christian culture in which the way you behave, or even what you think, is going to be different from what we think. But it is, it is interesting to notice that in Dante, heretics are out there in the burning sands because they're not just purveying an interesting private opinion. Their opinions are attack, an attack on the divine order of things, which Dante considers just unspeakably unsympathetic. The other one that he, that he doesn't like much, that we live with, uh, you know, usury. And he meant by usury, he meant just taking interest for lending money. And St. Thomas is uh, eloquent 
in denouncing this in the Summa Theologiae. And he denounces all the variants of it. He doesn't just stop with lending money. And the only thing one can think about this is, if we didn't have usury, think about what the civilization would be like. We'd all be out there uh, exchanging goods on the basis of a just price. We'd probably all still be farming. Uh, we wouldn't have uh, highways and automobiles, and the, uh, the national debt would not be increasing at $880 million a minute. None of, because there wouldn't be usury. Now, I, you have to think about this in two ways. You can view this as a terrible fate, worse than death, or you can move into a kind of uh, William Morris, John Ruskin world in which you think, well, that wouldn't be so bad. And it's at least a question that won't die, you know, because it keeps coming up. Is usury so wonderful? Well, Dante thinks that they're all pretty well uh, down there in the seventh circle of, of hell. And he was particularly hard. Of course, Dante was notoriously hard on his fellow citizens. They'd exiled him. They were not good people. They were quarrelsome and difficult. And they particularly had a huge number of usurers among them. And one of his images is they're all sitting there in hell, bent over with their purses around their necks, with the family arms on them, unable to look at anything but the floor because they've drifted off into usury. And it's time for me to, uh, to, uh, to, to stop this. Now, I must say that one looks in vain. He does one time at the end say Dante is told to go back and tell this story because perhaps it will make people better. But this is a story that is notoriously non-moralizing. Like all great literature, what it does is just give you a set of images. There's layer after layer of depth. He is describing a world populated by moral beings, and he knows that in this vast throng of humanity, there are very many who have not found their way out of the dark wood. And he knows well that purgatory and paradise are predicated upon the existence of hell and the moral imperative of seeking holiness in every moment. Thank you. Thank you, Doctor. Thank you very much, Doctor. We're going to take our, our short break. A couple of questions came up, and it has to do with what Father just said. One of the features of the last part of the Gospel of Matthew, where it describes the return of Christ, is that nobody knows when it is. So we can forget that. But there's a deeper point in it than that, and this had to do with somebody asked me a question about the apocalypse and the way the book of Revelation informs Dante. If you've been to Rome, all of you have been to Rome, there is a standard set of images in the city of Rome, which you can't know me more than an hour without my talking about, which universally depicts the return of Christ. It's the image of Jesus with St. Peter on one side and St. Paul on the other. It's a reference to 1 Thessalonians because what they're doing is welcoming him back to the new creation. The church put that up there because we go to Mass every Sunday and we say we believe that he will return in glory to judge the living and the dead. Now, in principle, that might happen before lunch. It might happen in the year 7062. We have no information about that. But it's intensely relevant to Dante's point about the fact that there is an ultimacy about every moment and all those parables in the New Testament 
that talked about being watchful? What's that for? It's because either you're going to return to him or he's going to come to you, and every moment has that kind of ultimacy. One of the other questions that came up is, you know, purgatory. Uh, yeah, belief in purgatory is a doctrine of the church. Now, what it is, the, how it is, is actually one of the sources for how it is, is the second part of the Divine Comedy. Because it's a wonderful example of what Newman would call consulting the faithful. It's what Italians in 1315 believed about purgatory, and there's not that much written about it. But believe me, it is a moral necessity, and Protestants who tell you that you're going to have a saving experience, and then you're going to do nothing but drink scotch and enjoy life, and then you're going to be run over on Highway 66, and bingo, you're going to be in the presence of God, are not telling you the truth. And the reason they're not telling you the truth is because your life is real. See, it's real. And everything you do is affecting your soul. And it's not magical. You know, it, in a certain sense, it is not possible for God to take somebody like myself and view them as perfect like that. And that's what purgatory is about. So you, I, it's a wonderful doctrine of mercy. And you need to be grateful for it and not go around being a modernist and thinking, well, maybe we've gotten shut of purgatory because uh, if you think you have, uh, you might be surprised. I don't know. <laughs> I'm not going to talk about purgatory. I'm going to talk about paradise. The metaphor that forms the paradiso is the ascent of Dante through the planets the world that he knows is this arrangement of circles with the moon, Mercury, Venus, the sun, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn, each of which has, or to which he assigns a different character. To mention C.S. Lewis for a second time, his uh, space trilogy is, is full of, of this metaphor. He describes the descent of the planets into St. Anne's. You remember that at a kind of festival of fulfillment. So Dante is going to ascend until he reaches the heaven of fixed stars, the sphere of the unmoved mover, and finally the Empyrean, or the heaven that is full of light and fire, where God lives. This last is an invention of theologians made in order to give God, the angels, and the redeemed their place in a cosmology that had originally considered the orbit of the unmoved mover the highest place. Of course, in this post-Baconian world, we are effectively killing nature, even as our sentimentality toward it burgeons. You're bound to have noticed this. The more we destroy nature, the more we become sentimental about the little polar bears. And the more we kill little children, the more we become sentimental about childhood. Because that sentimentality and that callous attack on nature just always go together. But for Dante, the planets were alive with light and music. The Hebrews thought that they were angels, or, or certainly living stars of some kind. And as they moved, they made the music of the spheres. It's a wonderful, wonderful image. It's uh, the dream of Scipio. Is, uh, Cicero's dream of Scipio is one of the ways it comes into uh, Western uh, thought so powerfully. 
Paradise is that timeless realm in which the longing that describes the proper end of man meets and fulfillment the condescending love of God. Dorothy Sayers, with her usual perceptiveness, pointed out that two aspects of paradise are likely to be especially incomprehensible to us. One is the notion of timelessness eternity. In a world that is taught that to travel hopelessly is better than to arrive, in which contentment with one's station in life is viewed as a betrayal of the most fundamental cultural value, in which rest is only equated with senility, it is not easy to grasp the truth that in paradise we are fulfilled in the place God has given us. We are, of course, not doing nothing because we are loving God with a pure intellectual love. And even that is not easy for us moderns because we are not likely to be familiar with contemplation, which is submission of the intellect and imagination to what is. It's when instead of telling you're telling it what it is. You stand in its presence and love it and accept what it is. Instead of restless probing against circumstance, inspired by curiosity and fed by ambition. Ambition is, of course, until the 18th century, a vice. And if you say to your son, be ambitious, it's like directing him to lose his soul. For Dante, knowledge is always a kind of love. And paradise is a realm of light and music within its center, the sun of justice enfolding the Lamb of God. Modern commentators have, of course, fretted that paradise is boring. In a way, once one crosses the threshold of the moon, nothing else happens. And here again, we meet a contrast between Dante's wor world, in which the goal is contemplation, being with the object of our thought and love, and the world of getting and having because in the Paradiso there is no getting and having. And of course it is true that the mind not attuned to heaven, not infused with that love and praise that is man's true end, will view being with God as especially pointless. And that's why one of the reasons we're here, and not the only reason we're here, because we're here to exercise dominion over God's creation in his name. But we're also here to develop a taste for what is. And what is, is his eternal kingdom. The eternal love we are destined to contemplate is realized through a hierarchy by which that love bears unequal results or fruition. St. Thomas asked if God had created equality and answered in the negative, which always makes it seem a little strange to me that we devote so much time to trying to achieve the impossible since it is not in God's plan that things be equal. He created a world, I hate to use the word diversity, but he created a world in which there are many, many wonderful things. When he considered the good things that God gave his creatures, he concluded that God gave all his creatures some good things, but that he does not give every good to every creature, and that he may not give the greatest good to everyone which to us sounds scandalous. And furthermore, the relation of the vision of God, of the redeemed to the vision of God, will be determined by the degree of charity that each has attained. Now this does seem scandalous in an egalitarian democratic state, but it's an idea intrinsic to the Christian religion. 
before Occam and Hume and Locke, the fundamental pattern in being was expressed in the ideas, and this, these are words you should remember if you want to understand Dante. The three words are hierarchy, mediation, and participation. There's this vast hierarchy of being, many levels. Each level participates in the level above it and the level below it. From the heights of God and the angels, being and love descend through the nine choirs of angels to man. From man to the animals and plants with each level being participating in what was above it and what is beneath it. Now this is also the common political analogy that St. Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 12 where he turns it into the, an image of the elect who constitute the church with each member having a place and with the understanding that the foot is not the eye but that each member is essential to the body. It's, it's, this is another thing that's because, see, this is also the fundamental political analogy because it's the analogy that says everybody's got a place but everybody doesn't have the same place. St. Paul says this in another way in 1 Corinthians 14. There are celestial bodies and bodies terrestrial, but the glory of the celestial and the glory of the terrestrial are different. One glory of the sun, another glory of the stars. One star differs from another. So this metaphorical field brings us into the realm of reality in which every creature and every soul has its place, whether it is high or low. Dante says in the third canto of the Paradiso, the sole good pleasure of the Holy Ghost singles out hearts which joyly, joyously espouse, informed by him what delights him most. Brother, our love has laid our wills to rest, making us long only for what is ours and by no other thirst to be possessed. Now these are the folks who are in the, the lowest part of heaven. And what Dante is telling you is, they're glad to be there. And they're not sitting there saying, why am I not higher up? <laughs> Making us long for what is ours, and by no other thirst possessed. To be the least of the kingdom of God is as much as to be the greatest, for each has found fulfillment in God's will and his promises. In his will is our peace. So the Paradiso begins with the lines, The glory of him who moves all things, impenetrates the universe, and bright the splendor burns, once here and lesser there. And Beatrice sings more fully, All beings, great and small, are linked in order, and this orderliness is form, which stamps God's likeness on this all. Now this is a coin, one face of which is God's love for all his creatures and all the varieties of their existence. The other face is his providential government of souls in a fallen world. Because in this world he is opposed both by fallen angels and by the human heart so often set against him. So that it cannot be that God does not will all men to be saved. But given the mystery of the human will and of human history, which fascinates Dante, not all men will or can join the beatific vision, or that at least is his conclusion. But every soul in paradise sees God. We are beyond the well realms of the will decisively misused in hell, beyond the realm of the will wounded and in need of repair in purgatory,
and into the realm of wills fixed on God with the only source of delight being God himself. We are also within the realm of the intellect and hence of the will fulfilled. Now, of all the Dante-esque ideas that's difficult to grasp, the meaning of the fulfillment or the soul or person through an act of the intellect is perhaps most difficult. Because the very faculty of intellect that Dante presupposes is the means to the beatific vision is now almost universally believed not to exist. With due respect to Merriam-Webster, the word intellect is not derived ultimately simply from the meaning mind. The word telos is in it remotely from the Greek language. All the modern derivatives such as telephone that assume the meaning of the tell root to have to do with distance or an end. The Greek word is entelechia, and it means that what is in the acorn is a desire to become an oak tree. It is a built-in, formal purpose of its being. In man, intellect means grasping the end or purpose, the faculty through which we know reality. You have no idea how much damage the demise of intellect has done. I always point out to my students that if there are eight or ten of you in the room, how am I going to know you're all human? Well, you've got ten fingers and ten toes, two eyes and a nose. But if I were fortunate to be able to bring to class a great ape, there would not be any certain way in which I could differentiate him from you particularly if you know some freshman. His speech might not be <laughs> so inferior. Now, of course, this is, a, this is a hyperbole meant to point out that the way you know what is, is you have up here in your head, St. Thomas calls it an agent intellect. You got this little invisible hand, and you go out there and rattle around in the essence of other beings, and you know what they are. So that if I were indeed to be in a fatal accident or near fatal accident on Route 66, and they put me back together in such a way that I was only four feet three inches tall and had one big purple eye right in the middle of my head, and you would be tempted to say Dr. Patrick is not human. This would be untrue. And it's also untrue that if I were a little newly conceived baby not looking like a person, I would still be a human person. Or when I am very much older than I am, lying there with tubes running out of me and unable to remember Dante, perhaps God forbid, you might also say Dr. Patrick is not human. Now you see what's at stake there? What's at stake is if you don't know the world through that intellectual act of knowing, you're going to know it on the basis that what you know is what you can kick and taste and touch. And then you're going to have a very deprived notion of what is, and you're going to make a lot of mistakes. And this is important for Dottie because he believes that your intellect just is out there. What's in you is a desire to know God and to love God. One of the problems that nobody has ever completely solved is the relation between the good as the intellect of the will and love and the true as the object of the intellect. You know, you can easily see, I mean, you're bound to have had experience of well-intentioned persons who didn't know what they were doing, capable of creating well-intentioned chaos. 
you probably also had experience of people who were very knowledgeable and intelligent, who had a little malice in there, also capable of creating chaos. So intellect leads the will toward the good, and Dante, being a good Thomas and Aristotelian, is really very clear on the proposition that there is a... I mean, think about it. If, 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 if there were no intellectual way of knowing things, nothing would have a form. It would all just be feeling. Schleiermacher would be right. Revelation would just be how you feel about things. This cannot be, and it's certainly not the case for Dante. So the end of knowing, which is the transformation of knowledge by charity, is the true end. Dante sings at the beginning, which I mentioned once before, form which stamps God's likeness on the all. all. There in the higher creatures see the trace of that prime excellence who is the end. For with that form was framed in the first place, and being thus ordered, all, and, and being thus ordered, all these natures tend unto their source, either near or far off, as divers lots of their diverse fashions blend. Wherefore to divers havens all these move o'er the great sea of being, all born on instincts given to everyone enough. Yes. And this bows discharge by no means wings irrational creatures to their goal, but those endowed with loves and reasonings. And in the second canto, that which is born with us cannot die. For the godlike realm has made us scurl or rush almost as swiftly as the visible sky toward our ends and even more pointly, poignantly how must our eagerness be multiplied to see him in his essence, in whose being God's nature and our own were unified, Christ. This desire for form fulfilled is put in man and nature. The faculty by which form is apprehended and achieved is intellect suffused with love. Intellect, in this sense, is, of course, the agent intellect of St. Thomas, the faculty through which our mind grasps the essences of things. In St. Thomas it occurs, one might say, empirically, because being an Aristotelian, these essences or forms are known in things, but it is itself not empirical. For lack of a better term, it is intellectual. This ghost of the speculative faculty appears in Descartes' conviction that we have immediate access to certain ideas that describe reality, even in Kant's conviction that we have a capacity to bring form to things as we know them. But by and large, after Hume, intellect is no more than a means. It is no more than a tool-making capacity that makes us clever animals, a life that ends in death. There is a reason why people like A.J. Ayer, and these are contemporary philosophers you won't know, but maybe you will know them, wrote as though philosophy really began with David Hume, because Hume had proposed a canon of the knowable that limits the field to what he called analytic statements and matters of fact, ruling what he called emotive statements and statement of value being emotive as effectively meaningless. That means that the entire realm of what you can know is things you can touch, or a series of categories that have verbal relations in them, such as spheres are round. When you've said sphere, you've said round. 
Trouble with that is you can also say unicorns are one-horned animals. That's another good analytic proposition. Doesn't tell you much about whether unicorns exist or not. But if you limit the knowable, which is what philosophy faculties routinely do, to that, it means that the things you really know and believe, that you want to love God, that you believe your wife loves you, that you think that uh, Van Gogh is a better painter than Grandma Moses, all of those things are merely kind of subjective meanderings that don't have any meaning at all, which means that the Nicene Creed is just an expression of emotion. See, this is the reason, interestingly enough, that right at the beginning of this, Newman wrote his book named The Grammar of Ascent, which is the philosophic treatise on what belief is, because belief is a something, but not to get too deeply into that. Freud, of course, pitched into the destruction of the intellect with the theory that reason, which is a function of superego, is just essentially obfuscatory, directing attention away from the essential person who is defined by the unconscious. But all this means that unless we are careful, we become merely creatures of desire with intellect reduced to a consideration of means, which Dante would have found horrible. One must rid one's mind of all these notions and understand that Dante is right. Knowledge is a transcendent faculty, a kind of love binding us to the known object and knowing this is a natural and supernatural fulfillment of life. I often like to think that philosophy is sort of a mother of secular mysteries. I say secular because it doesn't have to do with revelation, but with things that will be made clear when we see God. This would be something like the controversy between about the exact relation of knowledge to love, which is a conversation that will go on forever and will not be completely resolved in this life. Now, the metaphor that informed the inferno was the pit. The metaphor formed purgatorio is the mountain. The metaphor that informs the paradiso is that spatial metaphor based on contemporary astronomy, hence the conviction that there are the planets revolving about the earth beneath the heaven of fixed stars, the cosmology of Cicero and Aristotle. It is a metaphor as it is used in Dante's poem, but rooted in the common cosmology of the 13th century. One of the things we live with is we lost control of the, of the historical narrative in the 19th century. And don't deceive yourselves. Uh, Darwinism has done uh, huge damage. And it's done huge damage because I think of a, of a failure of Christian imagination. You've got uh, things you know, you know, you've got all those bones back there. But you need to think about a way that you know what they mean better than Darwin knew what they mean because we have suffered a lot from the fact that we went from the classical medieval world in which we really didn't know how old the earth was into a world in which uh, Bishop Usher had told us it was 6,000 years old into one in which Darwin told us it was a gazillion years old. And there's always a relation between faith and reality in that way, and Dante has it worked out beautifully in terms of this cosmology. Paradise is once again the organic world of hierarchy, mediation, and participation. Beatrice says of the spheres, the organs of the world thou seest worketh so from grade to grade as each is acted on by those that acts on those below. Hierarchy, mediation, participation. Just as there are differences between those who have sinned mortally and those who deserve a little relief in hell, and just as those in purgatory have failed to love to some degree, 
The souls in paradise have realized God's love to varying degrees. So the moon, inhabited by those souls who were inconstant to their vows, is the beginning. In the second sphere, we find those who have taken too much time. Dottie's progress, progress is from the moon to Mercury. In Canto 6, he will meet those lovers of political fame, the Christian reminiscence of the cursus honorum, the way of honor. There Dante meets Justinian, the great emperor who abandoned the Monophysite heresy for orthodoxy, dispatched Belisarius and Narses to regain the empire lost to the Ostrogoths, revised the code of law of Theodosius so that the code of Justinian would be the law of the empire till the 16th century. Caesar I was and am Justinian, who from the laws, urged by the primal love that now I feel, winnowed the dust and brand, brand. Virtuous souls this little star beget, who busied in good action, sought the praise and honor that will live on after them, pursuing justice, but not without an eye of fame. One of the wonderful things about Dante is he's never sort of a, of a uh, hundred percenter, you know. He always understands that things are not neat. So you've got this unneat category, these people who deserve not to be in hell. Well, we just do something about that. You've got all these characters in paradise. who they've, they've had faults, and so they're, they're, they didn't realize charity perfectly. But they're there anyhow, you know. So it's not just A or B. It's this, because this world is one in which there's this vast hierarchy. There's a hierarchy there. Now, of course, whenever Dante mentions Justinian, what you're going to get is the romance of Rome. And one could talk about this a long time, because Dante believes that the Roman Empire was uh, inspired by God, bringing it toward the Augustan peace so that Christianity could be established. The only uh, speed bump in the road was Constantine, who made the mistake of beginning to give the church property. But the Roman Empire is the will of God, and the Holy Roman Empire, or the empire of first Charlemagne and then of the Ottonian princes and the Swabians and those, write down, you know, probably, you always need to ask yourselves the question, when did the empire end? And the answer is 1919, because it persisted after it was sort of formally disbanded by Napoleon, whose destruction is immeasurably great. But anyhow, he did away with it in 1806, I think. But it persisted in the Habsburg House until the First World War. And the last emperor was Charles I, whom John Paul II beatified. So that's, that is the, for Dante, that was the God-given political organization of the world. Although, of course, he didn't live to see the last four centuries of it. It, of course, became uh, pretty much meaningless after, <clears throat> after it lost the bond that tied it together was religion. And when it became possible to be a Lutheran Calvinist, and there were all those Protestant princes, it lost its character. But, it, but that's what Dante loves. That's the eagle that he always is praising. And that, of course, feeds into his conviction that the papacy ought not fool with that, that, that the popes ought to leave the empire alone because that's a task given them by God. The ninth canto, still in Venus, the planet of love, gives us transition 
from earthly love to the love that belongs to the heaven of the Son. It ends with a denunciation of university theology as it exists. University theology always seems to have trouble. <laughs> and it's having trouble back here in the early 14th century. He says, dust gathers on the Gospels. This is, this is the Cardinals. It gathers slow on the great doctors while they thumb and scrawl or the decretals as the margins show. That is the whole lore of Pope and Cardinals alike. To Nazareth that felt the beat of Gabriel's wings, they give no thought at all. The Pope and Cardinals have no interest in the teaching of the great doctors where they pour over the decretals, the compilation of short texts from the fathers about the basis of canon law. And I thought when I read this, you know, it's a little better now. You'll occasionally, if you look at the sacred clergy in a diocese, occasionally one or two of them will be sent off to study sacred scripture in Rome. But you can be sure that a whole bunch of them will be sent off to study canon law because canon law is still sort of the, the machinery of the church that must go on. And Dottie thinks they just don't pay any attention to the Gospels. And one has this picture of the pages of the decretals with the, you know, the greasy thumbprints on it where they've been searching of things there. Elsewhere, Dante taxes the Italian cardinals for neglecting Augustine, Ambrose, St. John of Damascus in favor of commentaries on Gratian's decretals. But he's about to make good what might be considered this official neglect by giving praise to the witnesses to learning, theologians particularly, who inform the mind and heart of the church. In the Cantos 10 through 13, he enters the heaven of the sun, the sun's rays representing always God and the divine, leaving behind the planet shadowed by the earth, and there he finds ensconced 12 sages. And this would make a wonderful graduate course. Who were the 12 sages? And why does he consider them so important? Actually, there are two sets of 12 sages. But, they're first of all, the first 12 are doctors of the active life who represent the wisdom of the world Dante knew. They appear, if you've ever had a chance to read it, they appear as a circle of light dancing around Beatrice and Dante. This is the poet says, God's fourth family, because the sun is the fourth planet. The great witnesses to the learned life, some theologians, but also spiritual guides and historians. They are set in endless joy, bathed by the Father's rays, which shows them how he breathes and thus beget. And that's, of course, the dogma of the Trinity, because the Father breathes, breathes the Holy Spirit and begets the Son. And theologians have the, the duty of expositing this mystery. Beatrice then begins, Give thanks, give praise now to the Son of angels, that to this the visible Son hath raised thee to his grace. The reference is to the via affirmativa, the reading of nature, as old in Christian thought as St. Paul's observation in Romans, that from the visible things of this world the power and glory of God can be known which knowledge of the world of nature can lead to knowledge of the Son of God whom angels worship. Never was man's heart with such great eagerness, devoutly moved to make his whole self over to God with all the will that in him is, that as these words was I, I grew God's lover. Now what you're seeing here is what ought to be the motivation for the study of sacred songs. I grew God's lover. 
Now, one of the interesting things is this love affair with theology means Beatrice's eclipse. Holy needs must Beatrice self-admit eclipse. And I became oblivious of her, but this displeased her not. She smiled at it, so that the splendor of her laughing eyes from one to many things recalled my wit. So Beatrice gladly points to those closer to the sun, and there begins the great image of the holy wise. Lo, many surpassing lights and bright device, we at the center, they as a wreath were sown, sweeter in voice they were than bright of guise. Circling like dancing ladies, they sang, but then fall silent as if listening for a new voice. And when they fall silent, St. Thomas speaks. Now from within one fire a voice arose, since grace whose radiance wheresoe'er extended kindles true love, and thus by loving grows still multiplied in thee shines forth so splendidly, as up the stair to lead thee whence nuns ever except reascended at having descended, love multiplied in Dante shines forth as love always must. The stair he would ascend leads to Christ, as in John 3.13, the only one who came down to earth returned to, and returned to heaven. But St. Thomas says, he who would not assuage Dante's desire to learn, his desire for knowledge, is like a river dammed up from the sea. Therefore, Thomas will name the flowers and the garlandry that circles Dante and Beatrice they with joy surveying the beauty of Beatrice, who on heaven's behalf doth strengthen Dante. So St. Thomas begins by naming himself Lamb of the Holy Flock, obeying Dominic on the road he led us. He goes on to name St. Albert, Albert Magnus, brother to me and master, and then to make up those who are in the sacred circling wreath. The list is not one we now would have made although it includes familiar figures, for it is a catalog of the sources valued by a working intellectual in love with God in the early 14th century. Gratian, whom he had been so hard on because of the decretals, is included because the church must have ecclesiastical law. Peter Lombard, whose book is now a historical curiosity. I collect the things that seminarians tell me they were taught in seminary. And one of my most recent interesting events was somebody said the first lecture in theology is that it's properly divided into two parts. Everything down to the sentences of Peter Lombard, which is all outmoded and wrong. And everything since then, which is all wonderful. Think about it when you write your checks. Peter Lombard's book is now kind of an historical curiosity. It was included in Dante because in the sentences there was a kind of textbook for the study of theology, an anthology of the sayings of the fathers and the subject of numerous commentaries. Solomon is there, his idolatry forgot. It's an interesting thing that Solomon is very important. He's very important. One of the books that you might read along with this is, in the next generation, there is a, an English writer who is actually a person named uh, William Langland who wrote a book named Piers Plowman, which is sort of the nearest thing to a vernacular insight into a culture that Dante is. And it interested me as I started thinking about this for you all that, that, that Piers has the same estimate of Solomon, you see. David is not quite as important as he might be, but Solomon is important. I think it's because of the Book of Wisdom, and it's because, as Dante says, he chose a right that the obscure may now be manifest, think who he was, 
and think with what intent when bidden choose, he proffered his request. A king he was, so runs my argument, and wisdom did he crave for his behoof that as a king he might be competent. So he chose the right thing. So Solomon is there. There are two historians there which are now hardly known to us at all. One is Paulina Sorosius, whom Dante calls the pleader of this Christian age. He is the anti-Gibbon. You know, Gibbon wrote the story that said Christianity had destroyed civilization. Herosius was the historian who wrote the book saying it had saved civilization. And it's full of historical facts that Dante uses. He was the author of the Historiae Adversum Paganos. Boethius is included because in his Consolation of Philosophy, he gave Latin Christendom its decisive cultural start raising in a systematic way the relation between faith and reason. This has been a hallmark of Western thought from at least that period. Well, it's the hallmark of Western thought from Justin Barter on. The relation between faith and reason and the insistence that reason has a place, you know, because one of the things that happens in most non-Catholic theology is that reason is either forgotten or it's subsumed under the title vain philosophy and you don't want to do anything with it. Whereas for us, it's always the beginning of wisdom, though never its completion. Because philosophy without revelation always uh, becomes sterile and can indeed do harm. But Boethius is the person who said we're going to join faith and reason. St. Thomas is always the central figure. Every great theology represents the appropriation by a theologian of a philosophy. Because in order for there to be a supernatural way of thinking, there has to be a natural foundation for it. The natural foundation for St. Thomas was Aristotle. The natural foundation for St. Augustine was Plato and Plotinus. In both cases, natural knowledge being caught up in divine wisdom. With the rediscovery of Aristotle had come the awareness of his use by the Arabian commentators. Talk about that a lot. One of the interesting things is the, and I've got to bring this, but is the, is, the, is the way Dante views these sages and the way they show up in contemporary histories of philosophy and theology. It's true that Thomas is still at the center of things, but one of the people he has a very high view of is a person named Caesar of Brabant, who, if you will read your local history of philosophy, is kind of a villain. But he, Dante says that he reflects the eternal light. And I think that's because he was an Aristotelian too, although perhaps he was not entirely right about everything. And also Albertus Magnus, because he was another one of the great Aristotelians. So, so he shows up as kind of a good guy, whereas when we write the book now, he's not so much. Just as Celestine V tends to be viewed sympathetically, and uh, Dante didn't really want to give him the, the time of day. I don't have time to go over all of these, and what I'm going to do is go to something that I want you not to miss. As the story nears its end and fulfillment, one more time Dante returns to the politics of Florence and the failures of Boniface. The Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, all heaven broke forth be glory. No joy can tongue tell. O perfect life fulfilled in love and peace, O wealth past want, that ne'er shall fade or fly, but the political message must be reiterated one final time. 
So St. Peter denounces Boniface before all of heaven. Naming the first popes, Peter says, The blood of Linus, Cletus, and myself was shed to foster her who is Christ's bride, not that she should be used for gain of pelf. Not that the keys bequeathed to me should stand an emblem of a banner waging war against the baptized in a Christian land. This is a, uh, this is a refrain of every writer. Pierce Plowman, whom I just mentioned, calls the, some of the clergy, and he was a cleric, rapacious wolves in shepherd's garb. Uh, so give me, that's Dante. Uh, Pierce Plowman uh, says the same thing, that parsons and priests are supposed to be the rule of right faith, but when the root is rotten, then no flower shall flourish. Uh, this, of course, made its way down to the 16th century. The crowning and most damaging piece of it was Erasmus's In Praise of Folly, which is, by my lights at least, a cynical work that, that had enough. It's as though, you know, if you had taken... It's interesting that Catholic laymen always believe that clerics are recruited from the angelic order. But unfortunately, the human race is the only place they can be recruited from. <laughs> and they have all the failings that we have. And we, you know, expect them to be, and this is a tough question, because the way the church always, nobody can do anything about this. The way the church always gets got is on the morality question. You'll have a little rattling around about, well, transubstantiation is not right, but the more fundamental thing will be in the 16th century, look at the popes, look at the monks, look at the clergy. Not that they were any worse than anybody else that we know anything about, but that will always sort of be the argument, which is why, why they lead, I think, such, such hard lives and deserve all of our prayers and, and the attempt to be what they want to be and what we sort of hope for them to be. But when any of us, you know, don't, don't do well, things don't work out well, and that was what was happening right down to the 60s. And that, that made it easy. See, in England, which I probably know better than any other place, it made, made it easy for Henry VIII to recruit Catholics for nationalism because he had no interest particularly in religion. Certainly Elizabeth didn't. And what Elizabeth did was make the English people not Protestant Christians but English nationalists, which they still are to some degree. But I want to conclude with just reading you the last few lines of this wonderful poem. For everything the will has ever sought is gathered there, and there is every quest made perfect, which apart from it falls short. Now, I could have just taken those three lines as what I was going to talk to you about. Every, every good that your will has ever sought is gathered in the beatific vision, which for him is this great rose of glory. And there is every quest made perfect, which apart from it falls short. Now even what I recall will be expressed more feebly than if I could wield no more than a babe's tongue, yet milky from the breast. Not that the living light looked on wore more semblances than one which cannot be. For it is always what it was before. But as my sight by seeing learned to me the transformation which in me took place, transformed from a single changeless form for me, the light supreme within its fathomless clear substance showed me three spheres, 
which have three hues distinct that occupy one space. The first was mirrored in the next as though it were rainbow from rainbow, and the third seemed flame, breathed equally from each of the first pair. This is the double procession of God the Holy Spirit. How weak are words, how unfit to frame my concept, which lags after what was shown so far it would flatter it to call it lame. Eternal light that in thyself alone, dwelling alone, dost know thyself and smile on thyself love, and knowing and so known. The sphering doth begot, perceptible in thee like mirrored light, now to my view, when I looked on it a little while, seemed in itself, and in its own self he lined with our image, for which cause mine eyes were drawn together and held thereto. Our image is the image of Jesus. As the geometer his mind applies to square the circle, not for all his wit finds the right formula, howsoever he tries. So I strove with wonder how to fit the image to the sphere, so sought to see how it manifested the point of rest in it. Thitherto my own wings would not carry me, but that flesh, my understanding, love, clove, wherein its desire came to it suddenly. High fantasy lost power and here broke off. Yet as the wheel moves smoothly, free from jars, my will and my desire were turned by love, the love that moves the sun and other stars. And that's the end of the story. Thank you very much, Dr. Patrick. It seems that, uh, I know I went to Catholic high school and we learned about the Divine Comedy, but, you know, I missed the first part, so I apologize if, I, if I'm not up to speed, but it's, it's interesting how it still it seems to be relevant. It, was, it seems chock full of antiquity and everything else. You have to understand antiquity before you can understand the Divine Comedy and what, what's going on. But even, how is it that it still has this relevance today? Because like we kind of live in a post-Christian world in a way. But it seems to be something that everyone knows about. Like, every, everyone's heard of Divine Comedy. Whoever watch TV shows or History Channel, they always have, like, the end of the world and there's Divine Comedy or something. So how, why is that? What's the draw of it? Well, you, you mustn't let the world become post-Christian. Because <clears throat> what it is, is what's in your imagination. And one of the wonderful things about Dante that I did say on Thursday night is that he incorporates all of everything that's worth knowing and loving down to 1315 and the poem. And our job is to incorporate everything that's worth knowing and loving from the beginning to 2011 in our poem. The, the past is not back there. The past is now. And, and the past is, is those ideas and truths that we keep alive. And there isn't any broad, neutral, new, or adverse culture out there that's just a thing. You know, culture is not a something. I tried to say on the first night that it's kind of a living stream. And you have the privilege of being part of it. It would be wonderful if it were like a bank. I repeatedly find that folks think it's like a bank. And maybe in a little way, but principally it's not a bank. You can't just put it in the bank and there it is. Because we've got enough experience of how that was. You know, in the 1950s, we put a lot of things in the bank, and then when it was time to withdraw them, they weren't there. And they weren't there because nobody had loved them or cared for them, and you, it's just not an object. So your job and my job and everybody's job is to be a Christian culture with all the 
nuances that that has and with the understanding that it's not a something to which we are making an addition today. It's not a, an incremental building up of anything. It's having your imagination formed historically, theologically, by what is. Uh, and, and if it's a minority position, is there any such thing as a minority position? No, no, no historical organization is more, as contemporary scholars say, privileged than any other. One of the bumper stickers I used to try to sell has, was a slogan, please remember that you don't owe contemporary culture a nickel. You don't have to think any of the thoughts that they think. Most of them are wrong. Forget it. And just fill up your mind with the good stuff. Amen. I remember in college when discussing Dante, the professor made the point of mentioning that music only shows up in the Purgatory and the That's Paradiso. Could you maybe comment briefly about how the Christian culture, um, affected by music, you know, is demonstrated in this? That's another wonderful topic. Of course, what shows up in hell is noise. You know, perpetual den, you know, for which see the interstate system or any place you'd like to. What shows up in, in remember that, that the real world is always making music. Each one of the planets has a note. Together they make this, this wonderful music. I, you, you know, I don't know what happened to music is a subset of what happened to art. About 1920, it started to become impossible to say beauty, which is why it's important to read, read Dante. Uh, and all the images became critical, what I like to call critical. Uh, the, the music that young people grow up with now is, in my uh, view, a, a demonic den. And I'm not moved by the fact that the Beatles were wonderful. I think the Beatles were the beginning of the end. But I can't do anything about that. None of you can do anything about that. All you can do is be sure that they know something else, you know, somehow. You know, but it, it's, uh, it, it's and, and, uh, you know, this is a whole other topic because everybody in heaven sings. As far as we know, the only two things you do in heaven are sing and perhaps garden, you know. But there's, there are no other avocations, and it's just wonderful. And, uh, you know, I could have, if I had had world enough in time, Dante's, Dante's world of color and music is just magnificent, which we did get to. Sorry, what else? Would you call Dante's work a myth in the literary sense, not in the sense of falsehood? I wouldn't particularly call it a myth, although I can see how it could be a myth. I would call it an inspired image. Uh, my own, perhaps, personalistic definition of myth is that myth is truth as story, that which not only was and happened, but which is and happens always, as in the case of the first 12 chapters of Genesis. You know, we're required by faith to believe that there was a man and a woman named Adam and Eve. We're also, I think, required by faith to believe that we share in that life. It's something that goes on forever in us, you know, so there's not just something back there. Um, 
because I guess I think that even Dante lacks the universality of the mythic quality of Genesis 1 through 12. It's, it's full of universality. But see, one of the wonderful things we could talk about for another six hours is this interplay between the, the finitude of it all, the involvement with the politics of Florence and of the empire, the catalog of people, the names that he knows, you know, and, and this overarching eternal theme up here into which they all somehow fit. And in that way, it is, it is kind of mythic, but I don't think it's universal in the sense that Genesis 1 through 12 is. Being um, lazy, I've not read this book, but can you, can you recommend uh, one or two um, books that are devoted strictly to this subject which go beyond what Dante did? Because there are so many things in there that I and many others don't have any idea what he's talking about. We're not familiar with these things. Is there a commentary that goes beyond I'm sure there the is, and, and I don't know it. I, I, when I thought about sources to recommend to you, uh, <clears throat> one of the things I did was get down my copy of, uh, just, just get hold of the name Gilson, G-I-L-S-O-N. And anything he writes is worth reading. He has a book named Dante and Philosophy. He is also the author of a book named The History of Christian Philosophy in the Middle Ages, which is, has all of these people in it. I had to go to it to look up a couple of them because I had forgotten exactly why Gratian's decretals were so important, you know, but that's the source for that. The other one, and, and you all will know that what I bring to this is some kind of literary sense and an education in the history of theology and philosophy. And the the uh, works like Charles Williams' Figure of Beatrice is uh, just a gorgeous book. Um, and there are lots of biographies of, of Dante. One of the things that, that you need to, if you're going to have a, uh, is it uh, G.K. Chesterton wrote a book named Thomas Aquinas which Gilson said had more insight into Thomas than many of the doctors at the uh, Pontifical Institute in Toronto. It's a little paperback, and it's absolutely splendid. And I, if I'd thought about it, that's a book that will help you see the philosophy that's moving, moving this along. I, just, I long for you to see this world of purposeful becoming, because one of the things the devil has done is suppress the notion of purposeful becoming. So that now we're supposed to believe that the world is the product of chaos, you see. And that's part of the demonic project, is to convince you that it has no meaning. All you have to have to have a world of meaning is the first couple of sentences in Aristotle's Ethics, when he says, every art and every inquiry aims at some good. You know, that's all you need. Thank you very much, Dr. Patrick. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635. 7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be evermore manifest upon the earth. 
St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.